HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Heritage on Tour on Heritage Radio Network. You may know me as the host of Speaking Broadly, which is a podcast where I interview extraordinary women on their ride to success, their struggles, their challenges, and all of the joys along the way. But today, I'm investigating another set of joy. I am reporting from Japan instead of Roberta's. I took this trip to have a taste of Japan, and one of the most extraordinary tastes I had was at a temple two hours west of Tokyo. The temple is called Kasuisei, and it's a place you can visit for lunch, you can take classes, and you can be present for prayers. So you can go to eat, but you can also find inner peace. I took along with me an extraordinary guide, Shima Pezu. So, Shima, welcome to the show. Hi, Dana. So, tell me, what is the name of the Tenzo at uh, this phenomenal temple, and what is his role there? So, his name is uh, Taigen Koganeyama, and he's the head chef of the kitchen, which means he's in charge of uh, everything related to food in the temple. Okay, so calling him a chef actually maybe is a disservice to his role because it's anything that has to do with the food at all. And he's also a Zen priest. So what can you tell us about a shojin meal? Shojin cuisine has been developed by Buddhist monks in Japan as a vegetarian way of cooking since they don't eat any meat or fish. And they have uh, some characteristics like the rules of five. Okay, I want to hear. What are the rules of five? Um, it's like a guidelines, you know. They're not strict rules, but you follow these guidelines. And first, you have the five different tastes, which are sour, salty, sweet, bitter, and spicy. So spicy, that's interesting because I've always heard that uh, umami was the fifth taste. But is that not the case in um, Buddhist cuisine? Well, we wouldn't even mention umami because it's supposed to be in any decent Japanese meal. So it's not actually just the um, the monks who don't talk about umami as the Japanese in general because you're like, you got it, guys. We always have umami. Exactly. But then the Zen Soto sect has a sixth taste, which the others don't have, and they call it tang. 
And it's like the essence of the produce itself. Uh, okay, so what are the other guidelines? Then you have the five colors you should uh, put in a meal, which are red, green, yellow, black, and white. And anything else? And then the five techniques of cooking, raw, steamed, stewed, fried, and grilled. Okay, so you talk about it as a guideline, but how rigid are these guidelines? Does every single meal that you eat in a temple literally have to have, I don't know, this matrix of 15? Well, it's supposed to be the best way to cook uh, in a shojin style, but of course it's hard to follow it, the, the rules strictly. So they just do their best to stay close to uh, a, an idea of balance and harmony in the meal, according to the seasons and the produce you get each day. So it's actually pretty flexible. Like, to right. me, it sounds um, quite strict, but I think you're mm -hmm. saying that there's an enormous amount of flexibility exactly. built in. And so what is the mindset of a temple chef? I mean, now I understand sort of the rules, but what is the emotion behind it? What's the philosophical point of view? So they define it using an expression, which is kishin daishin roshin, meaning the three hearts a person who cooks should have. It means you should cook with joy, cook with generosity, and cook also as uh, if you were the mother of the ones you're serving the meal. So that's the big heart. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a big responsibility. Yes, because uh, he is in charge of not only uh, feeding everyone living in the temple, but health also is very important since they have uh, quite a tough life in the temple. So they should always stay healthy, never be sick. So always keep a good balance uh, in each meal. He said that they used to, long ago, uh, give the young monks only a bowl of rice in the morning. Right. Uh, but over time, that changed. Why did that change? Because you can't focus on your practice as a monk if you only have one meal a day. So from the Edo period, the 17th century, uh, they added a dinner. A light dinner, of course, but yet now they have two meals a day. And I think it, it, it's called a medical meal. Because the good excuse was to say that you need to take dinner to sustain your health in a better way. <laughs> so taking care of the health of the community, including the monks, is very important for the, for the chefs. Mm -hmm. And showing up to cooking um, with a big heart is also important, right? It's important to have that as part of the food. But some young cooks might not have that, right? Like, what happens if uh, a young monk is cooking and, and they're, like, angry at the food or they had a bad day? Like, do, does that ever happen at the temples? It is not supposed to happen because they, uh, daily practice is, like, uh, brushing your teeth or cleaning the temple or eating. Everything is considered as a practice. So cooking is also uh, seen as a practice for these young monks. So if you have a good practice, you're able to cook uh, the same meal, whatever your anger, your sadness, or your fatigue. Something that I learned was that you should never be influenced by what you eat. And mm -hmm. what that means is you shouldn't be excited when something looks good. You shouldn't be sad when something looks bad. Every single part of a meal is equally important and should be em embraced equally. And for me, as something of a food critic in my past life, I find that 
difficult because part of the role is to say this doesn't taste good this does taste good and separating those things out but but in fact that there's no place for that in the temple cuisine no because everything you receive is a gift of life and the person who prepares the food prepares it always with care and love so it's meant to be received with love exactly every grain of rice mm-hmm. and Uh, there's also a notion of no waste, right? Right. If you have a radish, for example, you should use every single part of it, from the leaves to the peel to the roots. Now, in the States, we have what we call um, root-to-top cooking. Mm-hmm. So it's a trendy way to say you should use every single part of a vegetable. Mm-hmm. But, you know, being here in Japan and realizing how honored and long standing this tradition is it makes me feel foolish that you know that once upon a time in food and wine magazine when i was there i was proclaiming it to be a big trend um it is something that chefs seem to embrace more but even at the time uh, the french chefs or the japanese chefs mm-hmm. would say of course why would we want to waste anything mm-hmm. I mean, we don't want to waste anything because it's you're putting money in the garbage um there are even chefs who would go through the garbage uh-huh. and pull things out and say good Why did you do this? You know, mm-hmm. we can make stock with this. Yeah. We can make, at the very least, we could make compost with it. So, yeah. the um, you know, waste is an important tenant mm-hmm. here, and it's an important tenant as we try to feed 10 billion people in the future. Right. Well, let's just take a, a quick break now that we sort of understand the underpinnings of this shojin cuisine. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the specifics. We're going to hear about this extraordinary meal that you and I got to share, and we get to see how the the colors, the techniques, and mm-hmm. the, um, the tastes all come to play in one amazing meal. So stay with us. Hey, this is Katie Mosman-Wadler. I'm the executive director of Heritage Radio Network, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to the only pizza-powered radio station in the entire world. For a decade, HRN has broadcast live from two shipping containers inside Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn, telling the most entertaining and educational stories about food and drink across 35-plus weekly shows. HRN has made it this far thanks to the support of listeners like you. If you like what you hear, show us some love by going to heritageradionetwork.org donate. With your help, HRN will be able to keep the lights on, the mic's hot, and the pizza coming for the next 10 years of food radio. Welcome back. This is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Heritage on Tour. I'm reporting live from Japan, where I've just had the most incredible experience of temple cuisine. With me today is my extraordinary guide, Shima Pizu, and we're going to talk about a meal that we had at a beautiful temple sitting in Uh, a tatami room just a few steps away from a gigantic Buddhist kitchen. Shima, that was such an amazing meal. Have you ever had a, a meal like that before? Well, I had meals at temples, but usually they would be blunt, you know, tasteless, and very healthy, but not really exciting. Okay, well, this meal does, was not like that at all. You got us prepared. I mean, we both had two layers of socks, thanks to you, because you brought me an extra pair of socks, and we were ready to sit on the floor, mm-hmm. but instead, the temple was ready for us. They had a little chair and a little desk. I felt like I was back in kindergarten, <laughs> and instead of having like a little pencil desk set, mm-hmm. there was two levels of lacquer trays, a higher one and a lower one, and on each tray were lacquer bowls. And the lacquer bowls 
included all the the beautiful dishes. Can you tell me about the Tenzo? He's known far and wide for his cooking. Why is that? Because usually, as I said, Shoujin cuisine is supposed to be rather boring and blunt. Yet this chef, he makes the best out of these uh, rules of five to really bring um, a variety of textures, flavors, and colors in a Shoujin meal. Because you should always keep a, a peaceful and serene heart without being excited or depressed, you know, always keep a... So in this case, um, the notion is that if you eat something that has very strong flavors, like a garlic or a scallion or an yeah. onion, it would be a distraction. Exactly. So the Soto sect doesn't use onion, garlic and scallions. And what is uh, the Tenzo's approach to cooking? So uh, he was, he's always very focused, as we saw in the kitchen, because he said that being focused on what you're actually doing is also a way of practice, and it's very important in your daily life. Right. I think he said if you're not able to concentrate, um, you've lost everything. So mm -hmm. he's quite serious when he's cooking. Um, that also seemed the key, the, the moment when I thought, oh, I think I should stop talking to him because he's trying to concentrate. <laughs> right. Then he was making um, a bun yeah. with red bean paste. What, what's that bun called? Manju. Manju. It's a typical Japanese sweet. And then he, he steamed it right there so we had a snack, which was so thoughtful of him because we were standing watching him cook for about an hour or so. Mm -hmm. um, and I had asked whether there's ever any humor in the temple cuisine and he said pretty straightforwardly no there really is no humor it's just not about that but he did say that personally sometimes if he wasn't cooking for the temple and he was cooking at home or with friends he might sort of toss a joke into the food like making those buns except with mustard right. and only one bun yes. with mustard so some person instead of getting exactly. red bean would have their mouth on fire right. that was part of his charm he has uh -huh. such a great personality and I think people come from all around to try his food, not only because it has flavor, but because he has an enormous personality. And at the same time that you get to try the food, you sort of partake of his philosophy right. in life. So our meal had probably, I don't know, 10, 12, 15 different preparations. And I thought that we could just talk through them and talk about mm -hmm. the technique and the, the color and, and how those ideas came to life in our meal. My, my favorite was the tempura. Mm -hmm. When the Tenzo was in the kitchen, he was standing in front of a gigantic vat of boiling oil with one hand behind his back and very long chopsticks in the, his other hand and he would put the vegetables in the oil and then he turned them and turned them and I thought he did it with such rhythm and such a sense of peace that I could intuitively understand how this was a practice mm -hmm. getting the vegetable cooked to the exact right um, consistency without burning without having the oil bubble too much mm -hmm. and then he set the them on a rack to uh, let the oil drip off. Mm -hmm. And then the tempura itself was a tour through the garden. Maitake mushrooms, which were very recently picked. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that was my favorite. A big green asparagus, mm -hmm. cooked and warm, but still crunchy. I also loved the, the raw 
um, course, mm-hmm. which had a, a tomato of the most vibrant red. It was almost blue. It was so red. And a cucumber that was about the size of my thumb with tiny little slits. I think the slits are there to make it juicy mm-hmm. um, and easy to eat. And that also was sort of an explosion of cucumber flavor in my mouth. And last was udo, which is a crispy white mountain vegetable. Mm-hmm. So in this case, um, we had three amazing colors, this fabulous red, the deep green of the cucumber, and the snow white of the udo. Mm-hmm. What were your favorite preparations? Well, I love the steamed dish, which was the chawamushi, because usually chawamushi is prepared with uh, eggs. It's an egg curd with vegetables and fish or meat inside. But today we had the chawamushi prepared with yuba, which is the tofu skin, and with a very smooth texture. And inside we had bamboo shoots, spring vegetables and it was really uh, delicious it was served warm mm-hmm. and um and that was you know well we've had some of the other ingredients were crunchy this was so smooth and right. creamy Silky, i love that yeah. did you like the stewed dish yes i loved it because we had the combination of colors and textures there also within a small dish so the, there was the yuba that had been rolled, mm-hmm. um, so it looked like a scroll. And then there was freeze-dried tofu, which uh-huh. was more like a, a little square that mm-hmm. a kid would play with. And then the carrot, which was sliced. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then a shiitake mushroom was, was just like a little mushroom cap. Mm-hmm. What interested me was that usually when I think about food that's stewed, I think of things that are mushy. Mm-hmm. But these were stewed in that they were probably cooked together. But in the bowl, you could appreciate the beauty and the shape and the color and right. the texture of mm-hmm. each individually. Mm-hmm. So it really um, was a challenge to my notion of what stewed is. Mm-hmm. And what about the grilled item? So we had the slice of yam. And the Tenzo chef told us that he had an inspiration while traveling to the mountain region of central Japan where the pickled potatoes, they cure them in miso. So he tried the same with yam that he cured in soy sauce before uh, grilling it. And that was amazing in terms of texture. It was half raw, half grilled. And it was really crunchy. Mm-hmm. And then it was a little slimy. Um, but slimy being a good texture, not a bad texture in this mm-hmm. case, probably because of the fantastic contrast. That also was sort of like a snowy white. Mm-hmm. Uh, and an individual, there was only one piece of yam. Is that partly just in order to honor the individuality? And also it's to bring a huge variety within a small meal, you know. We talked about how he got an inspiration for the yam, Um when he was traveling. I think he also got inspiration for this cured miso or cured tofu right. when he was traveling. Can you tell me about that? So this was a piece of tofu that you cured in miso and it had a cheese-like flavor, if you remember, and the texture also was very special. I've never had anything like that. And I, I, I like the idea that this chef, though living with tradition, 
is experimenting in cuisine, mm -hmm. you know, because he doesn't have to do that. I mean, he could just make the exact same thing right. that they have made for hundreds mm -hmm. of years. But he, he finds it exciting, I guess, to you know, bring things back from his travels and to share them with his community. Yeah, he's a real chef at heart, not only a monk. <laughs> so uh, in spending time with him and spending time eating this delicious food, what would you say that the lesson of cooking is that is important to life overall? I think his philosophy of life is to let it go with the flow, as he said. So instead of thinking ahead what you would cook today precisely and stick to it, he would just walk in the kitchen, observe the ingredients and get the inspiration and cook according to his inspiration of the moment. That's interesting because it, that does sound a lot like American chefs who cook from the market. Mm -hmm. you know, that's what they do. They don't have a set menu. They go and they're not Zen monks, but they have a, a real appreciation mm -hmm. of what's available, what's in season, like Michel Brass mm -hmm. or um, you know Dan Barber mm -hmm. in uh, New York State. So this notion of being f flexible and appreciating what nature gives you is quite quite universal. The go with the flow is a little bit more interesting though, because go with the flow means not only pick and use what vegetables are available, mm -hmm. but I think it's a, it's a bigger idea than that, which means don't get stuck. Don't resist change. If someone in your kitchen isn't cooking well, you know, well, maybe you'll modify the menu. Mm -hmm. If you have someone coming to eat, if they're elderly and they can't chew, don't give them the dish right. that you had in mm. your mind. Give them the dish that they need. They need and that idea of being open to who, whoever you're serving and whoever you're cooking with mm -hmm. uh, is really important because the notion there is to sort of be like bamboo mm -hmm. and be, be very flexible. Mm -hmm. And the more flexible you are, actually the stronger you are in your practice. Of course, and you also you become more creative and you can keep evolving. And so with that, that notion of continuing to evolve within the strictures and guidelines of that are set down through the ages, we're going to conclude this episode of Heritage on Tour. I hope you enjoyed joining me for a little bit of my trip to Japan. It was an extraordinary experience, and, and I recommend that if you have a chance to come to Japan, that you do make an effort to go to a temple for a meal. There are many temples that uh, accept outside visitors and do serve lunch and where you can observe the, the prayers and have conversations like these that help you connect the dots between your own life, your own cooking, and um, those around you. So thank you so much for, for joining us. And if you like listening to stories from around the country and around the world, please check in on the next Heritage on Tour.